You can find out what's happening in this thing you see on the screen in front of you called the Art of Neighboring, which is what we're doing alongside many other churches here in the greater Austin area this fall. How many of you guys have heard of the Art of Neighboring? Yeah, great. Just, yeah, a few folks. Better than the first service. Way to go, guys. All right, you guys are more awake. You listen. I think like three people raised their hand then. All right. So we're just doing this simple activity. We're asking the question, what if we loved where we lived? Hmm? What if we took Jesus' command to love our neighbors literally? What would that look like? And alongside that, what does it take to be able to do that? What does it take to be able to love our neighbor as well? And so what we're doing over the next few weeks is taking a look at some passages from the books of First and Second Peter in the New Testament to see the incredible resources we get there that God's given us to help us be great neighbors and to make a difference in our neighborhoods and in our city. So let's get into our passage here this morning on which the teaching is based. It's from 1 Peter, just a few verses, verses chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's God's word. A bit shorter than the last few weeks, I'll grant you, yeah. Like, man, thank goodness the last few weeks have been like an hour of a reading, but this morning, just three verses. All right, here we go. Perhaps like many of you, uh, I grew up in a, a church background, traditional church, and was practically born in a pew. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe that was you, yeah. Uh, I knew whose name, for example, was going to be inside that hymnal in row two. Guys have been there, maybe uh, because you you know you'd open it up and you'd seen who had given the money to buy the hymnal. Uh, I was also an acolyte, if you know what that was. True confessions time. Uh, one of the people, the little, little, little folks there, who who put up with wearing the funny white robes to essentially get to play with fire at the beginning and end of the services. Yeah, the ones who put the candles out. Uh, I knew which Sunday school classes had the best leftover donuts at the end of the morning, and maybe that was you. I knew, I knew which grandmas in the church to go to to get the extra candy they always had at the bottom of their purse, right? Uh, I also knew which grandmas to avoid because they were the ones who would look right down into your soul and ask if you could still recite the Bible verse they taught you in Sunday school when you were age five. That was me. Uh, I knew the 66 books of the Bible, 10 commandments, 12 disciples, nine fruit of the spirit. But I didn't know anything about what Peter is talking about in this passage right here. Because what Peter is talking about here isn't church background. It isn't tradition. uh, It isn't religion. It isn't organized church or disorganized church. It isn't about citywide campaigns or some church club to get into, or culture wars at all. This isn't about how you get into a club. No, this is about how you get into God's kingdom. In other words, this passage isn't about how you do church. It's about how you change your life. So let's ask, how can your life change today? Well, there are three, again, incredible resources. Peter gives us here. They're all in verse 3. So let's read it again for reference. Peter begins thanking God, praising God 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in His great mercy, He has given us, it says three things here, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you can see Peter's thanking God, he's praising God for three things, three gifts God gives us that can change everything about our lives. So let's look at these three things all in turn, spend our time just unpacking one verse from 1 Peter 1 by seeing what Peter means when he says, number one, new birth, number two, living hope, and number three, forever resurrection. Let's begin here in number one. Uh, in almost every poll you ever read about, USA Today, New York Times, etc., most Americans would prefer not to have a born-again Christian for a neighbor. Now, why is this? Well, because the term born-again has almost come to mean sort of like a, a separate subcategory of Christian person. It's like kind of a person who's, who's had some sort of you know, deep, cathartic experience because of some inner brokenness they were trying to get past. A, a number of years ago, for example, our ex-president, George W. Bush, said that he had had a, a born-again experience. And people said, well, yeah, of course, you know, he, you know, he needed that. He was an alcoholic. What do you expect? He needed to be born again. But people said the same thing years before that, when another ex-president, Jimmy Carter, said about the same, that he had been born again. So why this kind of response? Well, Underneath the shock and horror, people react this way because there's basically the belief that someone who claims to be born again is a person who basically couldn't handle life on their own, and now they're using religion to help push back in place what essentially kept popping out in the past. In other words, our culture views the idea of being born again, I've said this before, but our culture views the idea of being born again as sort of like getting a pair of spanks for the soul. <laughs> spanks for the soul. You know, stuff keeps popping out. So you, you, you get a pair if you need a pair. You know, you, you get born again if you can't keep your life together. Sort of like Peter, right? I mean, Peter's a mess. He's always blowing it, always, you know, cursing Jesus and for, refusing to follow him, betraying Christ. Uh, you could see, you could say, you know, I, you know, I get it. I see why Peter would need to be born again and why he thanks God for the new birth. But the rest of us don't really need that. Now, the only problem with thinking that is that's not what Peter says right here. Because he doesn't say, I'm thanking God because he's given me new birth. No, what does he say? He said, I thank God because God has given who? Us new birth. What's he doing? What does the us mean? Well, the us means two things, the first of which is deeply offensive. You're fair warned here. And the other is a powerful encouragement. So let's look at the offense that's implicit here. And to see that, we've sort of, we've got to trace the call that Peter's making with this reference. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Gospel of John chapter 3. And this is one of the most stunningly offensive passages in the whole Bible because Jesus in John 3, he's having a conversation with a morally upright man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. And to this man, okay, to Nicodemus, a man unlike Peter, Nicodemus had no discernible moral flaws. He was a rich man who, who gave his money, meaning he was talented enough to earn a living and conscientious and faithful enough to give it away 
This was a man who obeyed the commandments, who was squeaky clean. He was a man who did not need something popped back in place. And to this man of all people, Jesus said to him, Very truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You should not be surprised at my saying, what? You must be born again. Jesus says, truly, truly, this is a a Semitic way. When you double a word, it means to communicate the deepest part of that thing. In other words, Jesus is saying the truest truth I could ever give you. The essence of truth is this. You cannot see God's kingdom unless you're born again. He's saying, being a born-again Christian isn't some sign of, kind of subcategory of Christianity, kind of like a, you know, like a zoo specimen that you poke at to see if you can get a reaction out of. No, only people who have been born again are Christians. Jesus is saying to him, Nicodemus, the keeper of every moral commandment, you must be born again. See, the, the call, church, to be born again isn't a call, hear this, to more morality in life. No, it's a challenge to more morality. Because if more morality, if just having better values and being a good person was all God required, Jesus never would have said this. Oh, no. He isn't saying to become a Christian means, you know, you turn the new leaf over. You know, you just become a better, more moral person. No. He's saying, Nicodemus, you've got to be changed from the inside out. Nicodemus, your morality and traditional values are killing you. They're choking you. You think you're right with God because of those things. So do you see how offensive this is? can be, especially to morally conservative people today in our culture. It's offensive to them, but it's not just explicitly offensive to morally conservative people. It's also implicitly offensive to secular liberal people in our culture as well because secular liberal people try to define goodness for themselves. It's their own brand. It's just defined differently. Instead of the, it's the godless, open-minded liberal people in that party who are ruining the country. It's the... It's the fundamentalist, closed-minded religious people in that party that are ruining the country kind of speech they give. But the gospel says this, neither one. It says, it's the person in this body who is ruining the country with all his or her faults, flaws, and failures. See, And the only way out, Jesus is saying, is to be born again. And that's the offense. But, oh, but, on the other side of the offense, the other side of the coin, now we can begin to see some powerful encouragement here. How? A man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan was a British preacher uh, in the early 20th century, and he went to Italy, and he was touring there, and he saw an enormous graveyard there, and he went to the grave of a very wealthy man from the past who had an enormous marble slab laid over the top of his grave. But somehow, he saw, before that thick marble slab had been laid down, somehow, a single acorn had fallen into the ground there and taken root. And over the centuries, it had worked its way up in through one side of the marble, outside through the other. And it, over the centuries, hundreds of years, 
had cracked the marble slab that laid on the ground. He thought, isn't that amazing? It's one little acorn, right? I mean, you could take an acorn, you could put it on the ground and crush it to bits with your heel. And at the same time, if you tried to break the marble slab, if you hammered it with your elbow, beat it with your forehead, stomped on it with your feet, you could never begin to make a dent. Isn't that amazing? One tiny acorn, though, can crack something in half. You never could on your own. So why is Peter here thanking God for the new birth? Oh, he's thanking him because he sees the same truth that G.K., excuse me, G. Campbell Morgan saw in the graveyard and for the same truth you see every time you walk down a sidewalk in Austin, Texas, and you see roots bulging out and a cracked ground underneath you. Peter's thanking God for the power of the seed the power of the seed. After all, what does a new birth, new life come from? From what? From a single seed. And what does a seed do? Hmm? A seed grows, right? A seed grows, which means this encouraging truth about your life. It means that anything in your life can change and everything must change. I'll say it again. Anything can change and everything must change. When I entered college at the University of Houston at the age of 19, 18, and I came to a little meeting where some students from every nation campus, which is also the ministry we have at UT, uh, I'd gone to that meeting because a teammate of mine had twisted my arm and essentially made me promise him I would go that night my life changed. And on the outside, as I walked in, I was as churched as you could be. I was a teenage Nicodemus. I was wearing a Christian t-shirt that night. I was wearing a cross ring given to me by my pastor's daughter, girlfriend, right? I knew all about Christianity, but I didn't know Jesus didn't know Jesus. I was filled with lust and perversion and selfishness and pride. And at the end of the meeting, the man speaking there, he called me out of the crowd. He said, hey, I want to pray for you. I feel like God's got a word for you. I said, sure, I'll come up. It can't hurt. And then that man began to say things to me. He didn't know me. Say things to me and about me that only a supernatural and real and loving God could know. The New Testament calls that prophecy, lowercase p, the purpose of which is to lay bare the secrets of the unbeliever's heart, that they would fall on their knees and declare, God is among you. And that's exactly what happened. See, up until that moment, you could not have convinced me I was not a Christian. Man, I was infant baptized, confirmed, and took the first communion, all those kind of things. I'd taken the classes. On the mission trip, I had the cross ring to prove it, you know. I had everything but what I needed most. I didn't have the seed. I didn't have the new birth. And as I began to weep uncontrollably in public, that man there had to hold me up. I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, make me new, new. It was the most deeply honest prayer I knew how to pray because I knew I needed that. I didn't need another sermon. No, I needed another seed, another seed to change me, another kind of DNA implanted in me, coming up, cracking the ground, cracking the marble slab that laid over my heart and that lays over every human being's heart until the new birth happens and new life comes forth, see. I walked out of there that night and I swear to you, man, looking up at the moon, the sky looked different. The air smelled different. 
Habits, addictions I'd had for years were instantly broken. You say, man, that sounds like some kind of weird. I say, that's some kind of wonderful. And besides, it's my story, not yours. I was there, you weren't. Thank you very much. Happened to me. What was I experiencing? First Peter 1, the new birth. Not some modern, new Christian kind of experience thing, but no, the oldest and most ancient one there is. Look at, the, look at the philosopher, the theologian, Augustine. He said this in his book, Confessions. He said, God, you called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath. He's smelling something new, and now I pant after you. He said, I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me. And I am set on fire. And this is why Peter is saying, praise be to God. He's given us, not just me, but us, the rich, the poor, the young, the, the old, the morally flawed, the morally good people, the bad people, all of us, a way to have the seed, the DNA of God on the inside of us. Because we're all born with one kind of seed, church, a DNA, the Bible says, that's prone to sin, that weaponizes everything we have against God, our intelligence, our money, our ethnicity everything oh but this is saying here that god's seed is stronger than your stone it's stronger than anything that lays over your heart today see peter's saying i thank god for the seed the new birth anything can change and everything must that's number one that's the new birth the new birth now before we move on let me just give you two very quick implications of this bonus time here first this means that you This is you. If you're a Christian, you are putting up with stuff you've got no business putting up with. You're putting up with stuff that should have been out of your life a long time ago. See, some of you justify things. You inner monologue things about your life and about people. But Peter's saying here, I see your justification. I hear your inner monologue and I trump them with a seed. Second implication, though, is this. Sometimes growth just takes time. Just takes time. It doesn't matter how many bottles of milk you you shove down your baby's throat on cue there. There we go. Doesn't matter how many bottles of milk you shove in your newborn boy's mouth. He's not going to be an NFL lineman by next week. He's just not. Sometimes growth is slow, but because, because of the seed growth is inevitable. The new birth means anything can change, everything must, but why? Why is this true? Oh, we've got to ask, what's inside the seed, right? Something's always inside a seed that makes it grow. What's inside the seed? Oh, it's amazing. And it brings us to number two. The second thing Peter gives us, number two, it's living hope. Living hope, that's what's inside the seed. Now, the reason none of you high five there reason none of you just mean amen and hoo-hawed and all that is because our English word for hope is impossibly weak. We use the word hope, for example, interchangeably with the words maybe or I wish. For example, if you were to ask me, Morgan, will the Texas Rangers actually win the World Series in your lifetime? I would say, I hope so, which would mean what? Probably not, right? Probably not. Or if someone were to ask me, Morgan, are you ever going to be able to learn how to dance? (laughs) I would say, I hope so, 
once again, which would mean probably not, right? And as far as the dancing part goes, you should be actually glad about that. On the advice of my friends, I do ascribe to the, you know, the hitch school of dancing, which means I keep it right here, high and tight, nice and steady, and, and, and no one, including me, gets hurt. Okay. But again, because we use the word hope like that, when you read the word hope in the Bible, nothing happens to you. But that's not because there isn't a better definition. No, the Bible's definition of hope is actually amazing. And here's what it is. Hope throughout the Bible means this. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of a victorious future. I'll say it again. I got one amen. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of a victorious future. Why is this? Well, over and over in the New Testament, including here in Peter, the New Testament writers talk about hope, and it's because of this reason. It's because the Bible knows, God knows that you and I are unavoidably hope-based creatures. The Bible, in other words, is trying to tell you as loudly as you can hear it that what you believe about the future impacts how you live your life today, right now. And I know this is true apart from any empirical study, which actually those have been done and have proven this point, but I know this is true from what happens in my own house every night at dinner time because every single night at the dinner table, four little hungry people begin to gather themselves around it. And every night, because we are, in fact, loving parents, we present sometimes not just one, but actually two vegetable options for those four hungry people. And every night, one question is asked. Mom, Dad, if I eat my vegetables, will I get dessert? Right? No. And if the answer to the question is yes, oh, for you, my child, there is a gloriously sugar-drenched future awaiting you if you can scrounge down the lettuce and choke down the carrot then. The kid who's never been able to do this, who was previously gagged and swore it was impossible and not fair, now, now he can get it down and figure it out. Why? Because that child like you, is a human being. And human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. What you believe about the future impacts how you live your life in the present. Somerset Mom was a British atheist writer and humorist in the early 20th century, and this is what he had to say about the future of the world and what it meant for us. He said, quote, The astronomer tells us that at long last... The universe will attain the age of equilibrium when nothing more can happen. But eons and eons before that, human life will have disappeared. Do you suppose it will matter that we ever existed? We will have been a chapter in the history of the universe as pointless as the chapter about the strange monsters that inhabited the primeval earth. If one puts aside the existence of God and the survival after life as too doubtful, One has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself what I am here for and how in these circumstances I must conduct myself. Now the answer is plain, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. 
Now, Mom went on to write a novel called Of Human Bondage, and in the novel we, we meet a character, an autobiographical character named Philip Carey, and we see in the book that Philip Carey loses his faith pretty early on in life, and he believes that when you die, you rot, the sun will go out one day, all life will be extinguished, extinguished. no one will ever remember you. Therefore, your life is pointless. Now, Philip Carey believed what mom had said, right? Because there was no God. He had no reason to hope for good or to fear any evil or judgment or justice. There was no such thing as right and wrong, but it had never sunk into him what that really meant. And one day in the book, in the novel, one day he's sitting on a park bench in London. And on that day, Philip Carey had a revelation. This is what he said. He realized that there was no meaning in life. Man by living served no end. Life was insignificant and death was without consequence. And at last, it seemed to Philip that any burden of responsibility was taken from him. And for the first time, he was utterly free. But he realized he could never be happy. Oh, it's amazing. What's mom showing us? He's showing us if there is no God, there is no hope. There's no hope. It means like Philip Carey realized, if there's no right or wrong or good or bad or evil, hey, the only obligation I have is to do as I see fit, right? Now, thankfully, mom was writing Philip Carey in an honest way. In, one, in a way to live out his worldview, realizing he was happy, you know, without happiness and without hope. But that's actually in contrast to how the average person in our city in Austin, Texas lives. The average person here walks around thinking, you know what, there's no God, Christianity is a crock, I can live any way I want. No such thing as truth or right and wrong, but I believe in love and peace and justice and human rights. Hmm. See, this this is you. This is what you believe. My appeal to you is to at least have the guts of Somerset Mom to admit that human rights and love and justice and peace are a crock and a sham if there is no God. And if there is no God, no such thing as real right and real wrong, you do have absolute freedom. But you have zero chance of happiness and zero chance of hope. And church, that's called a dead hope. That's a dead hope. And that's the reason Philip Carey struggled in life. But do you know the real reason that most of you struggle when you struggle? See, a small percentage of you today, you you may be like Philip Carey, you're struggling because you have no hope or a dead hope. But the the reason most of you are struggling if you struggle, when you struggle, is because you have what's called a decaying hope. A decaying hope, not dead, but decaying. You say, what's that? What's a decaying hope? Well, over the years, in our marriage, in our lives, when my wife, Carrie, and I, when we've struggled, it's been for two different reasons. It's because of where we each individually have sort of put our hopes. For example, uh, when I'm struggling, when I'm, you know, having a hard time in life, it's usually because of the church. It's because of my work. Something's not going right, I feel, in my work world. Not uncommon for men, of course. And I'll, I'll communicate that to her. I'm having a hard time. And she'll turn to me and say, you know, it's okay, Morgan, just trust the Lord, right? But when she's struggling, it's not because of work, it's because of the family, right? Or because of kids, not uncommon for women and and, and females. It's because of the kid's life, the family life. Those things cause her soul to struggle and weaken. And I turn to her and I say, hey, it's okay, Carrie. You know, just trust the Lord, which actually hasn't worked out as well as I would have liked it to have worked out. 
tip there. There you go for your husbands in the room. But the real reason, see, that we struggle when we struggle, and the real reason you struggle when you struggle is because all our hopes are in things that decay, that decay over time. Listen, even if you've got the perfect family life for a few years, right, man, your kids love you, it's all good. One day, they're going to move on. They're going to grow up, move away, maybe even die. Oh, it's not pleasant to think about, but that's a possibility. And if your hope, therefore, is based on having the perfect family life, eventually, the ground underneath your soul is going to go away. If your hope, for example, is in looking hot and being wrinkle-free forever, just look around the room. That's called a decaying hope. And if you think your career will be eternally successful, you'll be amazing forever. Just talk to any athlete or pro athlete, right? Their bodies decay. They get slower, slowly, even the best who have ever played. And the same thing will happen to you just in another area. Everything you place your hope in in this world will decay and betray you. It's just a matter of time before it happens. It's like Johnny Cash saying, everyone I know goes away in the end. True words. And if that is your hope, if that's what you place your confidence in, if it's anything in this life, you're going to struggle. And if that's true, which it is, then we got to ask, well, how in the world can Peter give thanks to God for hope? Hmm, How can he do it? If all hopes betray and decay. And the answer is, he's not giving thanks for hope. He's not. You say, yeah, he is, Morgan. Look at the passage. No, no, no. Look again. What does he say here? God's given us new birth into what? Not just hope alone, not a dead hope, not a decaying hope, but what kind? Come on, you say it. What? Living hope. We have a living hope. A hope that never dies. You say, how can that be? Because of number three, a forever resurrection. Let's go back to Jesus in the Gospel of John for a moment. After Jesus spoke to Nicodemus there in that first story, he goes out and we see him begin to teach and perform miracle after miracle. And there are seven of them in the Gospel of John. But John never calls them miracles. He only calls them signs. Isn't that odd? What does that mean? Oh, It's because a sign is a pointer to something beyond itself. In other words, a sign shows you what's up ahead and where you're headed on that road. And Jesus' final miracle in the Gospel of John, the seventh sign, the complete sign, is a unique thing altogether. The final sign is the famous story of the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus had died at an unexpectedly young age, and now his body has begun to decay and to rot in the tomb, and Jesus goes to him, and, and, he, and he stands there in front of the grave, and John 11 says that Jesus was agitated and troubled. It means this, he howled and he raged at death and decay itself, and then he raised his friend from the dead. So what is this a sign of? Well, the clue is essentially in what Jesus says to Martha Lazarus's sister when Lazarus is in the tomb and Jesus is on the way Martha comes in between and she says this Jesus if you'd have been here this wouldn't have happened if you'd have come Lord you could have fixed it you could have prevented it you say you're God right then why did the bad thing happen to me and what does Jesus say to her in return he says this verse 25 he said 
I, Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And John calls this a sign, a sign. He says the whole thing is pointed to where life is headed, where things are headed. What does it mean? It means this. It means this whole scene, can you see? This whole scene with Lazarus isn't just about a one-time resurrection. No, this is about the future resurrection. This is about what happens to us when our bodies decay and we fall away from this earth and we pass from this life. The final miracle is pointing you to see the final thing Jesus came to bring an end to suffering, an end to disease and sickness and death. See, this is a sign to Jesus' purpose, which is why he says what he says to Martha. He's saying he's going to bring resurrection, not just to Lazarus, but to the whole world. And what he's doing on a small scale with one man, he's going to do on an infinite scale with all those who trust him one day. I mean, think about it. What's happening here? What's this? A man a follower of Christ who's died, gone into the grave. He's decaying, then put back together, raised to life. And in the next chapter, we see Mary, Martha, Lazarus, all eating and drinking and reclining with Jesus. And church, this is a picture of what resurrection is, what happens in the next life, not just a ghostly mansion in the clouds. No, but new heavens, a new earth, real bodies, eating real food, reclining with Christ for eternity. And the Christian doctrine of resurrection, therefore, which is what this miracle points to, says that what we receive with Jesus in eternity isn't just a consolation prize. For the life we always wanted but can never have, no. It will be the life we've always wanted. And what we receive then will be all the greater for having gone through what we go through right now. It means all the sad things will come untrue. This past spring, one of my sons played on a baseball team that was, to put it bluntly, horrible. <laughs> Actually pathetic. Maybe a more accurate word. I got, I got back from the first practice and I told my wife, I said, listen, I don't think their team's going to win a single game this year. It's like the bad news bears. You know, I don't see how it's possible. I don't think we're going to win a single game. And for the first half of the year, we didn't blown out game after game. And finally, we got halfway through the season, hadn't won a game and we're playing, thank God, the other last place bad team, right? And we got close. We were up by seven runs with just two innings to play. But then everything decayed. (laughs) Everything fell apart. It came down to the last inning, and the other other team was batting. We just had to hold him. We're up uh, up by two runs. The bases are loaded. You know, two strikes, two outs. We need one pitch to win it. Our pitcher throws it. Strike three. Game over. We win. Except we didn't. The catcher dropped the ball. The play's still going. Begins the first of six consecutive errors on the same play. First, the catcher drops the ball, but he could have just picked it up and stepped on home plate. Would have been game over, but he didn't. Thirdly, he could have tagged the runner coming in from third base, but he didn't. Fourth, he could have tagged the runner going back to the dugout. But the coach told him to go back and run, ran in front of him, didn't tag him then either. He begins to run the ball down to first base like he's carrying a football. We yell at him to throw when he's three feet from the base. And guess what he does? He throws it. The first baseman drops it. Next two hitters, ground ball, ground ball, error, error, game over, we lose. Up by seven, blew it. Yeah. 
My son was in tears. Tears. We rode the whole way home in silence. I texted Carrie. I said, baby, you're going to need to be on the porch when we get home. You know, we need mama's touch right here. He came home. We gave him ice cream and sent him to bed. That's what we did. I told her, that's what you do. I said, that was the most humiliating, capital H, humiliating loss I've ever been a part of. And man, I've I've been around a lot of baseball. We may actually never win a game, but something happened after that to this horrible, pathetic team. We came back and somehow, I don't know how, began to win every game from then on out. Won five in a row, finished one game just under 500, under even for the year, squeaked into the playoffs. In the first game, we faced a team that had crushed us twice, but we blew them out. One kid hit a grand slam. That never happens in Little League. Next came the semifinal against the top team. They'd lost one game by one run to the second place team we beat them this time holding them with the bases loaded in the bottom of the last inning and now on to the championship game you think man the kids are going to be nervous right i mean they're playing the championship but in the dugout man it was like it was just like a preseason scrimmage the kids are in there you know boys junior high boys are passing gas i mean throwing sunflower seeds at each other loose as a goose silly putty your turn to hit okay one kid hadn't gotten on the whole year gets three hits how does it happen i don't know they're laughing the whole time we win the game the game why why were they like this because the worst thing that had ever happened to them that could happen to them had already happened see (laughs) nothing could touch them yeah and looking back on it i saw something all the nightmare of that humiliating loss that one night weeks before all the nightmare did was make the championship moment the resurrection moment that much sweeter it made our story better and the trophy mean even more and if what the bible says about the resurrection is true and it is it means all the nightmares great and small you experience in this life will only make your future that much sweeter and so when jesus tells martha oh I am the resurrection and the life. He's telling her that because of what it's going to be like. He's telling her, oh, Martha, because of who I am, because of what I'm going to do when I go to the cross, when I suffer for you, when I go through the nightmare of being separated from God on your behalf. Oh, what it means is this. It means you can have a living hope, a living hope because of my resurrection. See, it's going to enhance your joy. Listen, The glory of heaven isn't just the consolation prize for the life you always wanted but couldn't have. No, it will be the life that you've always wanted. The nightmare of your life, your childhood, your marriage, it'll only make the future that much better. C.S. Lewis put it like this in The Great Divorce. He said, they say of suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even all that agony into a glory. And if you have these three things, church, new birth, living hope, resurrection power, it means you can be a great neighbor now. Neighbor now. You can love your neighbors freely, graciously, generously. You can, like, get to know their names at least. Why? Because you don't care how you look. You don't care about what kind of car you drive or house you live in. No. Because you don't have a decaying hope anymore. You've got a living hope, living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.